These are the tribulations of Paulette. UAM is no time to be in search of a legal parking space in dark and desolate Newton. The vacant spots around the police station are marked for official vehicles. But wait, my business is official. I'm here to bail Dolly out of jail. I pull into an empty spot that says, reserved for police chaplain. Newton's Garden City nickname surely harkens, among other things, to the supernaturally green, circa 1952 interior of its police station. I approach the high counter and rise on my toes. All the desks are empty, their occupants most likely tending to the massive transformer accident Dolly caused in Newton Center. Off to the side, a teletype machine, or whatever, spews riotously. A lone desk sergeant sits nearby, reading Dispatch Monthly. Hi, I'm here to pick up my friend, I say. Name, he says, and I tell him. He strolls over to the counter, and I wonder how it is that most cops look like Roger Clemens. She's in big trouble, he says, speaking to me like I'm the one in big trouble. A breathalyzer was out of order, so they took her over to Watertown. She should be back in an hour or two. An hour or two? But I'm here to bail her out now. Is this going to take all night? Might, he says. Can you tell me if someone was with her when she was picked up, I ask? Oh, yeah, there was somebody with her all right, he says. Well, is he here, I ask, fearful that Ricky didn't give me enough 20s to bail out Bunyan as well. The officer walks over to the teletype machine, or whatever, and rips off the last page. Know what this is, he asks, holding up reams of paper. Uh, first draft of your novel, I ask? This, he says, is a rap sheet. Mr. Bunyan isn't going anywhere. He has warrants on felonies in three states. He's passed out downstairs. He's even missing teeth, had to be carried in. He a friend of yours, too? Good question. Changing the subject, I try to be chummy. My friend Dolly, she's been through a bad divorce. This guy was her rebound relationship. I tell Clemens, the desk sergeant, about Dolly's marriage to celebrity chef Jason. The term celebrity chef confounds him. I don't know what that is. Celebrity chef, he says. Well, have you heard of Chopped? Don't go out deep much, he says. Haven't you seen Iron Chef on TV, I ask? I think it's been on for like 10 years. No, he says. Well, when will you call the bailiff, I ask, switching to a more familiar subject. Not until your friend is back in the building. You'll have to have a seat, he says, turning back to dispatch monthly. I walk over to the waiting area and sit on a wooden bench. I search my handbag. No iPad, no notepad, not even a checkbook I can balance while I wait. I walk back to the counter. Say, do you have anything to read back there? Any magazines, I ask? No, he says. Come on, not even a Playboy, I say? I'll take anything. Roger Clemens stands up and sighs as he looks around for something for me to read. He reaches into a wastebasket and hands me Gathering of the Waters Christian Magazine. Thanks, I say. You don't happen to have any coffee here, do you? Now you're pushing it, he warns. 
This is what I get for parking in the chaplain spot. So, Gathering of the Waters Christian Magazine is designed to give the reader insight into how Jesus Christ is working through his people in the greater Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. After scanning the table of contents, I turn my attention to the cover story, which asks, Is America Filled with Wickedness? The article presents a summary of the seven deadly sins and how modern American society is reviled by more religious cultures like Islam for our capitalistic surrender to sin. The first, my personal favorite, is lust. According to Dante, who made his name writing about this stuff, you can purge your desire for sex if you walk through flames. But I walk with flames, otherwise known as hot flashes. Does fire eventually put out fire? I proceed to gluttony. Thomas Aquinas argued that gluttony could also include obsessive anticipation of food and drink, and went on to say that if you ate too eagerly, too expensively, or too much, you were a glutton. I wonder how my health-conscious, food-addicted father-in-law Ricky would feel about that. As for anticipation, I guess I always knew that fantasizing about evening cocktails during breakfast had to be some sort of sin. Greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. These all sound vaguely familiar. And I realize, with a chill, that I am the seven deadly sins incarnate. Maybe Dave knows it and wants to sew my eyelids shut when he sees Barney's shopping bags in the back of my car. Does he think about forcing me to walk with a stone slab on my back when I come home with rest lane scars? When Dave discovers me taking a nap, I wonder if he finds me slothful and wishes me to run many miles at top speed. I picture Dante holed up in his attic, quill afire as he scratched out the punishments of the purgatorio, while his crazy menopausal wife, bodice agape, acted up in a trattoria down the street. I nod off on the bench, and an hour goes by. I awaken stiffly from a whiff of hot air, which precedes the arrival of a man I assume is the bailiff. He sets himself up quite efficiently on a table in the corner of the waiting area, then proceeds to have a few words with Roger Clemens, who motions me over to join them. The bailiff looks at me over his half-eyes. Your friend is accused of very serious offenses. She is being released to your custody. Her driver's license has been taken away, and she'll need to be in court at 7.30 a.m. That's in four hours. It's your job to ensure that she makes it to this hearing. Does she have an attorney? A husband, perhaps, who can help? Ex-husband, Roger Clemens says. Celebrity chef. Well, what's that? The bailiff asks suspiciously. Clemens explains the epithet. I wonder if these guys have been in a vacuum for the past 20 years and make a mental note to search Mayo Clinic online for ill effects caused by a recurrent dearth of recessed lighting. As I sign the requisite documents and hand over the 60 bucks, the opaque glass door to the holding area opens to reveal a wretched dolly, shackled and shoeless. Her fly is down. She's missing her belt 
and her eyelash extensions are cartoonishly glommed together. Gypsy-like, she sports just one large hoop earring. A necklace police matron, desperately in need of lip liner, takes off Dolly's handcuffs and hands her a police-issue Ziploc bag containing her shoes, handbag, and all of its contents. Dolly can barely manage to stand. I put my arms around her. Myriad smells of jail, booze, and fright compete for my attention. Dolly stinks. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you for coming. She sobs onto my shoulder. That woman, that matron... I had to change my tampon in front of her so she could strip search me. She saw everything, Paulette. Oh, she had to be with me the whole time. I even had to poop in front of her. Oh, my God. Starbucks loss is the Newton Jail's gain, I say, attempting to make merry. By the way, that's a really swell job she's got there. Wonder if they have any openings. I help Dolly step into her shoes and point out her gaping fly as I navigate her toward the door. Wait! Oh, oh, wait! We forgot Bunyan! We have to help him, she says, turning back. Um, I'm going to talk to you about that in the car, I say, steering her toward the door. We make our way slowly to my car. Stupid warrants, she says. Oh, he's got a warrant for this and, and a warrant for that. It all came out after he hit the transformer. That's why we tried to leave the scene. But we have to help him, Paulette. Whoa, wait a minute. After he hit the transformer? Dolly, who was driving your car? She squints at the chaplain sign. Hey, I should call our church. I bet they can help us. Dolly, who was driving your car? And I need something to wear to court, Dolly says. Too bad there's no time to go to Alan Bilzerian. Dolly, Alan Bilzerian will be lucky if they have electricity to open tomorrow along with the rest of Newton Center, I say. Is that because of me? She wails. Oh, no. I shut down Alan Bilzerian. She hangs her head. It dawns on me that I don't really need an answer to my question of who was driving. Dolly is still drinking Bunyan's Kool-Aid. Of course it was he who hit the transformer. He must have switched places with her before the cops came. As we pass by the scene of the crime, Dolly begs me to stop. I have to see what we did, she says. Please, maybe I'll find my earring. Three huge Edison trucks are still working to replace the telephone pole. We park and get out. Awestruck, Dolly stares at the circus of activity. Jesus Christ, I did all this, she says. I don't remember any of it. I must have fallen asleep at the wheel. I point out skid marks all over the road. You weren't asleep if you were hitting the brakes, I say. Better get that straight before the judge straightens it out for you. I show Dolly where her car was loaded onto the flatbed. She drops to her knees, scanning the ground. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. This is a sign. A miracle, she says, as she picks up a lustrous object from the black asphalt. Your earring, I say, that is good luck. I kneel next to her and take her hands in mine to admire the find. Turns out that the shiny object is not Dolly's earring, but a dental bridge sporting several false teeth. Ew, 
In a very David O. Selznick moment, Dolly clutches the bridge to her breast and weeps. And that's when I realize, to my horror, that the false teeth must belong to Bunyan. Despite the accident, the arrests, the rap sheet, everything, Dolly's beloved jailbird from the state of Nantucket will never go hungry again. This is Eric Fontana. Next time, Kangaroo Court. Till then, ta-ta.